Thank you for knocking. Please lock the door behind you. Uh, make sure uh, the towel is positioned. You're working in on another $5 buzz. Uh, my name is George Kursar. Uh, I'm out here in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, I'd like to say hello, as always, to uh, the fellow co-hosts, uh, Pete Liska in Los Angeles. Pete, what's going hello. on? Hello. How are you guys? Doing good, man. Uh, and then Roger Mayer, also uh, in Los Angeles. How are things, Roger? Everything's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for asking, George. Very good. Thanks. And then we'd like to, uh, we're happy to have back uh, a veteran of $5 Buzz who appeared on episode five. Uh, he's our buzzard on the beat. His name is Tom Taylor. <laughs> so as we approach uh, Memorial Day and we, you know, we have a long weekend ahead of us and it's time to kind of reflect on uh, freedoms and, uh, you know, 2020 has been a tumultuous year. Uh, a lot of people have opinions and uh, different uh, points of view on a lot of things. But um, I think one thing that we could all kind of rally around and appreciate is uh, the thanks for the servicemen and women who have uh, been putting in the real work for a long time. You know, there's some, been some news in the headlines. Uh, hopefully it's true that um, finally, after almost, I think it's been 20 years, just about, uh, the U.S. will kind of draw down their occupation or uh, participation in uh, Afghanistan. And uh, we really wanted to pay some respect to uh, someone who uh, defended the country, served the country, and we're very lucky enough to be joined by uh, Adrian Bonnenberger, who's a very impressive individual. Adrian, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, we appreciate uh, your service. Thank you so much uh, for everything. And uh, we wanted to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me on, fellas. Really appreciate it. I love what you're doing here. Good. Great. Uh, thank you so much. And I just kind of want to, Adrian, just to introduce you, you know, you've done quite a lot of uh, interesting things and uh, you know, uh, I just kind of want to let the listeners know who we're talking to. So uh, you you grew up in Brantford, Connecticut, which I think Adrian, you would say is probably right on the border of where Red Sox Yankee territory. It's like right where New York and New England kind of intersect. Is that right? Cause I grew up on Long Island and my wife is from Hamden, Connecticut. And I know once you kind of drive past Brantford, like we're in New England now, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, half of my friends were Yankees fans. I'm a Red Sox fan. It's just sort of, I've been to more Yankees games than I've been to Red Sox games. Uh, definitely more Yankees and Mets games combined. But uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. You got it exactly right. Yeah, you feel, you just feel it when you drive kind of past New Haven and, uh, you know, uh, West Haven and Brantford. So just to give the listeners like what part of the world, we're, what, what part of Connecticut we're talking about. And uh, you're, you graduated Yale University, which, uh, you know, it's impressive Ivy League background. And then from there, you went on to teach English in Osaka, Japan. Is that correct? Yeah, I, uh, I, I had this idea. I wanted to, um, I'd been, con I did some part-time consulting for a year back when uh, a, a really basic knowledge of HTML could actually land you pretty decent gigs with like companies that were using like really basic scripts in the background of their pages before all that stuff got automated. And after a year of that, I was just like, I just wanted to see the world before I went to law school. You know, that was like, that was my idea. So I, I went to Japan. Now, in J after Japan, you enrolled uh, in the U.S. Army, and that was September 05. 
uh, and you were there for um, six and a half years um, until January 2012. And if I'm speaking out of order here, I just want you to correct me. Some of the positions you held were platoon leader, executive officer, and I see here that you were involved with the 10th Mountain Division. Is the 10th Mountain Division have anything to do with Fort Drum, New York, by any chance? Yeah, it sure does. That's uh, the home of the 10th Mountain Division. I think there's one brigade. Things got so jumbled up uh, during the War on Terror, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, that a bit later, uh, the weird ways that, that that sort of jumbled the military and our society. Um, but one of the ways it got jumbled up is there was a brigade for a while that I think got closed down, the 4th Brigade that was down in Fort Polk. So the 10th Mountain Division was in New York right. and uh, Louisiana. Well, you wrote a book called Afghan Post, and that's kind of really how you came on my radars because um, in a previous episode, uh, the guys and I were talking about um, – Hunter S. Thompson. And, you know, um, we were kind of saying, you know, there's really not too many journalists in the world that kind of uh, can captivate an audience like him. But we kind of brought up a few individuals and Matt Taibbi was one of them. And I, I told you this, Adrian, that he, you know, I've always kind of followed his work. And I read an interview that you did with him. And that was really impressive. I know you have, uh, you know, you do a lot of writing yourself, uh, even some journalism. What was it like? Uh, are you a fan of Matt Taibbi's work? Do you think that, do you hold him in high regard? And what was it like to uh, kind of have an exchange with him? Yeah, I met Matt Taibbi. He, um, he was starting a journalistic outlet. And I want to say 2014, 2013, something like that. There were a lot of individual journalists that were going out and trying to start their own outlets. And uh, I think through his connections with Glenn Greenwald and The Intercept uh, and Rolling Stone, um, he, he, I think it was called First Look. Anyway, I knew a couple of guys over there, a guy named John Schwartz, who was really good friends with a mentor of mine from Yale, um, uh, Mike Gerber, and, um, and Alex Perrine, who's done a bunch of uh, really good kind of muckraking work um, with, uh, he was with Gawker and uh, later a place called Splinter. Now I think he writes for the New Republic. Anyway, they were put, trying to put something together down there. And so I went in uh, to interview for a position and I pitched a few stories at them. They gave me the green light. They were like, yeah, start reporting them. And, I, and then the sort of like funding fell apart for it before I could do any writing for them. So I'd known him since then. I think that's probably how Afghan Post got on his radar. But you know, talking with him, he's, um, I, I, everybody, I think something you said in the beginning of the, the show, you know, every, everyone's, everyone's got their opinions, everyone's got their perspective. I certainly don't agree with Matt Taibbi about like everything he says or all of his perspectives, um, you know, uh, but I think one thing you, you, you can't, you, you can't uh, find a better journalist or a more knowledgeable journalist about the sort of uh, misbehavior of corporate entities, right. you know, and this is a huge problem for America today, sort of like out of control corporate entities. I'm a part of a, a couple corporate boards. I mean, I'm sure we're all familiar with corporations. It, you know, this podcast is probably incorporated. It's probably an LLC, if you know, or will be at some at some point when. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and you know, corporations is just it's just an easy way to get business done. But some of these things, you know, they're so big they've got you know hundreds of thousands, or, or, or in some cases, you know, maybe even a million employees. And you're like, you know, it almost becomes a small nation unto itself and they start making decisions on their own and they start influencing nations and they start influencing armies. 
Uh, so I really like Taibi's work. Uh, I'm not going to say that I agree with him with, uh, you know, on 100% of the things, but talking with him, talking with a master of investigative journalism, of asking hard questions to people in power, you know, that's, uh, that's the lifeblood of democracy. But regardless of what your political persuasion is, you could be a socialist, you could be a national socialist, that's as important. Yeah, and I read, I, I listened to the audio book of his latest book. I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but he did something rare that he kind of uh, did some self, self-evaluation self and kind of blamed himself, criticized himself and said, you know, hey, w- during the um, the early 2000s and, you know, up until today, um, the media weren't, you know, they weren't that responsible. And he said he was part of that and he kind of, you know, really took himself to task. And, you know, in this day and age, you don't see a lot of people putting their own brand or reputation on the line for scrutiny. You know, I thought that was pretty uh, commendable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, if you can't take responsibility for a mistake that you've made, if you can't apologize, uh, you know, you don't, you have no business as a leader calling yourself a leader. Now you don't have to do it. You know, there are plenty of things you can do in the world that don't require rigorous self-assessment and taking responsibility and saying, you know, I messed up, uh, but that's not one of them. I, mean, I was just, uh, I was just on a podcast. Um, the daily for the New York times came out on uh, Friday uh, covering to be Frank, you know, one of my worst days as a commander in the military, we walked into a minefield and uh, you know, that was my mission. I planned it. I led it. We got Intel that there were mines there. We brought minesweepers. We, we did what we could to, to, to negate, that, um, you know, uh, to neutralize that threat. I talked to the minesweepers, you know, before we went on the hill, I talked to the sergeants, the platoon leaders. One of the sergeants thought that we didn't need to go on the hill, you know? Everybody else thought, no, you know, this is the right thing to do. And I'm not saying it was a democracy. I'm, I'm, I'm saying I, I made that call, that was me, but there were other people who had different ideas. They were right and I was wrong. And I've been apologizing to the soldiers who got wounded on the hill, you know, a couple of whom lost their legs ever since. And I always will because I was wrong. I made the wrong call, you know, that's, that's life. And it's very rare to see that in the media, to see any type of consequences for that. It's very rare to see that in journalism, you know, to see somebody think about how hard it is. How, how often do you see a major media publication, you know, a major publication on either side, on the left or the right or in the center, uh, you know, issue an honest to God retraction when they get something wrong. Yeah, it seems, yeah, you're absolutely right. It seems the culpability is non-existent, especially nowadays. And, you know, people are very loose with facts and, uh, politicians and journalists alike. Absolutely. There's, there is very little accountability seemingly. And, uh, Adrian, I don't want to minimize any of this stuff, but I'm going to try and, uh, go through that you know your impressive resume uh, as quickly as i can columbia business school i mean columbia journalism school excuse me uh top of the trees uh right up there with the uh university of missouri uh what was that training like up in columbia uh, you know was that you know what type of folks are you in class with uh the professors what was that experience like it's a great experience um i I, I feel a little bit bad in the sense that, you know, I, I was, I left the military in 2012, went out to LA to work uh, on a screenplay with a buddy of mine and start writing uh, my memoir. Screenplay never went anywhere, needless to say. Uh, you know, a billion screenplays get written uh, every year. Most of them never see the light of day. 
very good experience. But um, you know, my first experience in uh, an institutional setting at Columbia Journalism School, I feel a little bad in the sense that, like, I you know, I, I was probably a little bit like a wrecking ball there in a sense. You know, I made some great friends. I still stay in touch with them. Uh, John Ismay, one of my roommates, as uh, a reporter with the New York Times now, a conflict reporter, really detail-oriented. He was an EOD tech with the Navy. His brother, older brother was a SEAL, um, you know, a great friend of mine. Uh, anytime I go down to D.C., I, I try to stop in with him and his wife. Uh, Damien Spleters uh, was another one of our roommates. He works for Conflict Armaments Research. So he was, uh, as of a couple of years ago, I think he was in Iraq. I mean, he was like right behind the frontline trace of Iraqi troops. Um, exploiting uh, ISIS weapons factories, trying to figure out how they were making weapons as that wow. happened. Um, so the training, you know, uh, I would say it was probably better for me in terms of networking, in terms of meeting the type of people that were interested in the types of things I was, and also who had integrity and were asking the right types of questions, who weren't interested in access journalism, they were interested in finding out what the truth was. Uh, that was the, the most important thing for Columbia Journalism School. You can get a great journalism education just mobbing up with your local newspaper uh, and working there for a year. That is as valuable uh, from a journalism perspective as you know spending a year at Columbia Journalism School. But um, I'm, I'm certainly glad that I did it. Right. That, that's impressive, man. And then you did some work at SUNY Stony Brook. Uh, who has better pizza, Long Island or <laughs> Connecticut? Putting you on the spot right now. Uh, it's it's New Haven. It's New Haven yeah. style pizza. It's got the best pizza. The Long Island is my favorite. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm from Long Island. I'm a little biased. I know Bar and some of those spots in New Haven are uh, really good. So I was hoping you were going to go uh, with the the New Yorkers, but you you're a New Englander, so I know you probably wouldn't. Uh, so I now you're here, man. I got to yeah. sleep here. <laughs> you can't insult these people's pizza, man. They take it very seriously. They really. That's what I've noticed uh, here. You know, you could drive anywhere on the Long Island Expressway, pull off and find great pizza. And everyone is like, yeah, we're, we'll eat anything up here there. You know, there's a lot of tribalism, would you say? And yeah, man, it's rough. It's rough. <laughs> um, and now um, you're back at Yale and um, you are part of uh, the Yale Medical uh, uh, School. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm, I work in their uh, Office of Communications. Uh, I run their social media accounts and I edit the um, Yale Medicine Magazine, uh, which is their magazine. Uh, very educational about medicine, science. I've learned a ton. Um, and of course, you know, they're doing some cutting edge research, cutting edge research right mm -hmm. now um, into uh, what's, what's causing COVID. Um, and also some of the implications of, of long COVID. So the, the research that's going on here is just extraordinary, um, mostly beyond my comprehension, but they have me in as somebody who's interested in these types of things and can, um, it, in some cases, translate for some of the doctors who are, or, or the scientists who are so far in the science that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it, it can be a little bit difficult for them to communicate, you know, in a way that, um, you know, most people would understand what's going on. So. That's my job. I'd also like to say really quickly uh, that there is one thing between uh, Stony, SUNY Stony Brook and, um, and uh, Yale, mm -hmm. which is that I was in Ukraine for a few right. years reporting on the war over there. And uh, that was a pretty hot time, uh, wasn't it? With, um, 
was that when Georgia, uh, do I have it right? Uh, Georgia was in the news because uh, the country of Georgia, am I saying that correctly? Were they seceding from, uh, maybe you'd explain it better, but there was a lot of, uh, you know, geopolitical um, action at that point in time, correct? Yeah, from about 2015 to 2017, um, I got to Ukraine two months after the last big maneuver battle, they were having battles that were lasting, you know, like a week where like a thousand dudes would die on both sides, like, like almost World War II level battles, tanks, artillery. I got there right after that, but the artillery was still going heavy. So uh, I, I made about uh, 10 or 12 trips to the front line, um, the very front line. And, uh, you know, I, I, saw, I saw more like fighting in Ukraine than I did in the US military in Afghanistan. And we fought quite a bit on my second deployment. Um, I saw on my first deployment, I was much more of an observer. I was a second in command, the XO. So I was not participating in that. I was sort of resourcing guys. I got in like one really, really minor firefight and like, you know, was close to a couple of rockets going off, you know, drove over a couple wow. IEDs, but nothing like in, in the grand scheme of things, you talk to like a ranger or a seal or, you know, a, 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 somebody from a kinetic unit, a unit that had a lot of contact. My first deployment was extraordinarily safe in a pretty dangerous area, like improbably safe. Uh, but in Ukraine, I was, you know, I was under a couple of uh, very long fire for effect, effective art heavy artillery missions from the Russians and the separatists. And I would trade, you know, I would trade an hour of that for an entire combat deployment to Afghanistan. The Russians are not, you know, they don't fuck around when it comes to heavy artillery. That was a dumb thing that I did. I, I that's another mistake that I'll admit. Wow. Wow. It sounds, so, it sounds so archaic to hear you describe like giant military maneuvers and tanks and artillery. And it's like week long maneuvering world war two style that that's, still happening that's still the the resources the thousand deaths on both sides and steam ahead yeah there's you know the uh i ought to put in a quick um plug here for a buddy of mine nolan peterson who was a special operations warfare pilot um and uh is has been in ukraine since 2014 uh at first he was reporting for um, the Daily Signal, which is the Heritage Foundation's um, sort of uh, PR wing. Um, and now he writes for Coffee or Die, which is a kind of uh, center-right um, veteran publication. Uh, but there isn't politics over there. That's one of the things I liked about you know, the military, and, and which is kind of cool about war, politics-free zone. So Nolan and I, our politics are a little bit different. I'm more of a center-center-left guy. Uh, he's more of a center-center-right guy plenty of overlap. Um, but, you know, when it comes to that stuff, you can't get better reporting than Nolan Peterson. Uh, and you ought to check his stuff out because he's been over there for a while. But the fighting is just, it's its a mix of World War II and World War One. They've got trench lines. Uh, I, I, I've seen trench lines twice in my life, once in basic training in 2005, when we walked through a clear, clear, enter and clear a trench like battle drill, which I never saw again in seven years, six and a half years in the military, only saw it in basic training, never again, until I got to Ukraine when I saw like, you know, kilometers worth of trenches, textbook, extra hand grenades, boxes of ammo, machine gun positions, snipers, uh, just insane. And then, you know, 
obviously the tanks and the artillery and the UAVs. Uh, only thing you didn't see over there was um, was air because the, the Ukrainians and the Russians both have such um, you know robust anti-air cap capabilities. They just shoot each other's you know uh, planes out of the sky. So neither of them fly. All of us here are Gen Xers, so uh, one thing that uh, Generation X kind of, everyone has the specter of like Vietnam hanging over them. You know, we were all kind of came up uh, growing up with, you know, watching movies like Red Dawn or, um, you know, uh, there was always this hangover, right? And Roger is, you know, in the film industry and we talk quite a bit about films. And, you know, I right as the pandemic started, it was strange. I started watching Ken Burns's uh, documentary about Vietnam. And I said, what we're going through right now as a country is really um, a joke compared to what the political environment was during Vietnam. And um, even if, you know, you watch movies like First Blood or The Deer Hunter or DC Cab even, which was a comedy with Mr. T, but all of them had these undertones of like uh, veterans coming back from uh, service and not being treated properly. You know, they were kind of misunderstood. They were treated poorly. And even like, you know, a famous band from Generation X, Alice in Chains, they have the song Rooster and they say they, the line is they spit on me in my homeland. So the, the Vietnam veterans... They weren't really thought, at least as a kid, I remember it was kind of almost like a taboo subject, right? But I'm glad to kind of see that, you know, this generation of veterans um, are treated a lot better. They're held in higher regard. The, you know, they have some big platforms. I'm thinking of guys like Jocko Willink and uh, uh, David Goggins. I think they're both ex-Navy SEALs. And then there's a lot of... Uh, uh, companies out there that are started by veterans like black rifle uh coffee or uh go ruck which is uh you know weighted vests or uh, zero foxtrot which is uh, apparel company and even like you know the big crossfit community they really embrace the veterans and you know they name even this weekend tom i think you and i are both going to do the murph wad who and murph uh, grew up in long island out where i grew up so uh, he's held in high regard there Adrian, why do you think, and I'm glad to see this, but why do you think that uh, the sentiment has kind of changed and, you know, uh, veterans and uh, servicemen and women are, are, are treated differently than they were when we grew up and, you know, uh, folks were coming home from Vietnam? You know, what, what's different? Like, what's changed in your opinion? Well, my hypothesis would be it's a combination of the fact that the Vietnam veterans themselves worked really hard to sort of push back against that stigma. And I think there's a sense that, um, like, for example, there's a sense that, you know, they just weren't going to stand for it uh, happening again. There was a, uh, there, in, in the old days in World War II, and I think after Korea as well, they had, um, Two, there were two really big veterans organizations, veteran service organizations called the American Legion mm -hmm. and uh, VFW, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, yep, right. uh, belong to both of these organizations, but they're pretty long in the tooth. And one of the reasons they're, they're pretty long in the tooth and, and you know, somewhat under attack is because they really turned their backs on the Vietnam vets. This is, you know, the, the, the culture is reflecting something that actually happened. The music songs are reflecting a, a reality for these guys, which is that, you know, they, went, they walked into the VFWs and the American Legion halls, you know, looking for camaraderie. 
and these guys were like you know no like f you you're you're baby killers you know no we see we know what you're doing in vietnam what you're doing is dishonorable you're not doing it was the first time doing. we were in a war that we actually looked at very you know with, with a with a critical eye and that poured over into every facet we were so jingoistic and rah rah in our uh, you know, when we landed in World War One, World War Two, and then into uh, Korea, that by the time we got to Vietnam, we were in sort of a, a lost cause. We were in a war we didn't, you know, that 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 was going nowhere very fast. We were spending a lot of money. We we're killing a lot of innocent people, and it was the first time we were frustrated with ourselves as a nation, and that poured over into everybody not knowing how to act to one another. I think. I mean, there was a a lot of resentment, a lot of just mis. You know, you got to be coming out of Watergate, coming out of Vietnam. You know, there was the first time that America, big, beautiful America, you know, the land of the free, the home of the brave. Well, we weren't so free. We weren't so, you know, brave anymore. You know, there was a moment where the rug was pulled out from underneath us. And that just translated into everything from education to the way veterans were treated to, you know, everybody started looking at ourselves with a critical eye. And I think that had a lot to do with it. Now, the autocorrect of that, I think, led to, you know, all these years of sustaining that sort of, you know, the veteran coming home, everything from movies like the movie coming home with John Voight and Jane Fonda, both winning an Oscar for it, you know, to uh, eventually, you know, it, it's not so much a love of war, or love of military. It's a recognizing that, you know, the, the, the individuals that end up in the military you know, they don't make those decisions as to exactly what they do or where they go. They just follow the orders. Right. And I think that just becomes that dawns on us eventually again, you know, and it's, it's, it's like, it's not so much being a proud American where you just jump in, you know, blindly like we did in world war two, but now, you know, there's just a little more awareness, I think from both ends and, and how, and how the veterans are treated. Yeah, that's yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's it's it was a lot of uh, a lot of um, awareness building, and you know, and like you said, that with Vietnam was the first war we saw on television. Sort of like, I don't know if it was live broadcast, but it was you know, World War II. You'd still go into a movie theater, you'd watch a you know a Daffy Duck cartoon, and then you'd watch a reel about you know uh, MacArthur, you know, walking you know walking off a boat. Onto a beach or something it was very highly scripted, highly managed. The journalists were there, but the censors were there too. And I think Korea was probably a, a you know not 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 too dissimilar from that. So, yeah, you know, and I, I don't know, I, I don't know if you guys think, like, I, it, we we want we live we live in a democracy, and it's not good to have any shibboleths in a democracy. It's not good for everybody to think the country is unequivocally right or correct. And it's not good for everybody to think that the country is wrong and everything we do is wrong. Like both That's of those right. things are bad. And I, I don't know, it, it certainly seems sometimes like veterans can do no wrong. But then on the other hand, there's a lot of stuff in our culture now where it's like, you know, a lot of people flogging themselves, you know, trying to burn everything down. And it's like, you know, if you burn everything down, there's nothing left. <laughs> I have, I'm reading this book that you uh, were an editor for and also uh, wrote a story for uh, and it's called the road ahead. And I wanted to read a little uh, excerpt from Roxana Ro Robinson's uh, forward. She says, when I began my own deployment into the war zone, that is when I began to explore what war means to a soldier, 
and I began talking to veterans, I was struck by the way they would deliberately reject my assumptions. Any assumption I made, it turned out was incorrect, which is more or less the reality between veterans uh, and the civilian world. Uh, I found that to be very poignant that, uh, and I think the guys here would agree, you know, where we are civilians. So we try and approach a lot of this stuff with tact and respect. And, um, but, you know, there obviously is a great deal of curiosity and interest in, you know, this story of our life, right? For the past 20 years, there's been military conflict. And it always strikes me that the world goes on, right? At home thing, you know, people worry about sports or celebrity gossip or their mortgage or their job. Meanwhile, overseas, there's folks like yourself and your, and your colleagues uh, doing the real work. And um, I just found that passage to be really uh, poignant and- where, where, where to begin? Um, I went into the military. I, so I got back from Japan and I started studying for the LSATs and George W. Bush was reelected. And I can't say that I was sort of like, I, I passionately hated Bush or his administration, but coming from Yale, coming from a household mostly of Democrats, coming from, you know, my group of friends, it shouldn't be any surprise that like, they were much more critical of the Bush administration. Um, so when he was reelected, like you said, sort of pragmatically, I thought to myself, because, because, okay, so we're all Gen Xers. You remember the nineties In the mm-hmm. 1990s, the way war worked was America or NATO or the UN or whatever came in wrecked house for a month or two. And then it became a UN peacekeeping mission. And like, that was it. And it so was like a week long. It was a week long. We dropped some bombs, blah, 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 you know, aircraft carrier something, 10th Mountain Division deploys, and we're out. And, uh, and so if you're in the military, when that happens, you get to see action. If you're not, if you join because of the thing that happens, you're just, you know, mopping decks or, or like, you know, doing maintenance or whatever. So when 9-11 happened, I was at Yale. I mean, I, 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 I remember like we had class, I'm pretty sure. And then we hung out afterwards and got, you know, silly drunk. And, um, but like life went on and I didn't think to myself, like I ought to join now. I thought to myself, if I join now, you know, if I, if I drop out of Yale and like, you know, also I was pretty close to finishing. I wasn't thinking like, I'll join now. I was thinking like, if I join now, I'm going to be a private for like three years doing nothing, watching the UN in Afghanistan or whatever, like, cause that's how it works. And then when George W. Bush, when I got back from Japan and George W. Bush was reelected, that's when I was like, okay, this is going to be happening for a long time because he's locked it in. And I, I, I'd been in Japan, so forgive me for thinking that John Kerry was going to win. I had no idea. I just, I was just like, Kerry's going to win because George Bush took us into Iraq and it seems to be going badly. When I got into the military, most of the dudes there were pro Bush, although in the military, you don't, you know, you, you can't campaign, there are sort of restrictions on your political identity, guys talk all the time, and they make their preferences known in private. Um, people were pro Bush, people were pretty pro Cheney. I would say 99% of the people that I talked to hated Don Rumsfeld, which is strange, because it's, it's unusual to get any type of consensus on anyone. And that's only because they sent he the people felt that he had sent them into Iraq with shitty equipment. They felt that wow. he was the one who sent them into Iraq with bad Humvees, bad or no body armor, 
and did not set them up for success. And so they held him to they held him to blame when things started to go badly there. And that was that was true certainly through 2008, 2009. Rumsfeld people would have long, elaborate, and disturbingly violent fantasies about what they would do if they ever like stumbled into Don Rumsfeld in a back alley, like after drinking. It was like you know it was not good. Um, but you know uh, yeah, let's let's. I mean, this is bipartisan, and that's why it's going to be a forever war. Because hey, we elected Barack Obama. Hope, hope and change, time to bring it home. You know, everything's going to be good now. Going to solve all the problems. 2016, you know, we're still in Iraq. We're still in that. We tried to get out of Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. We did more drone strikes under Obama than we did under Bush. Obama ramped up the drone campaign. And it's, um, I think, you know, across the board, you can look at things and you can, you know, when you take a step back, you realize a lot of the individ the individuals here politically seem like they're part of a big machine that they have no ability to stop. Adrian, and, um, I, I, sorry, go ahead. I'm so sorry, but I just have to ask what in, in, from your, from where you sit, what was the impetus to go to Iraq in the first place? Why, why are they going after Saddam Hussein after, why are they using nine 11 as a seemingly, this is just from where I sit, seemingly going after Saddam Hussein and what is he related to nine 11? I don't understand the connection why we went there in the first place. Remember, just to quickly set us back in time, the axis of evil, right? The um, weapons of mass destruction. There was rumors or information or intelligence that in Iraq, Saddam had been violating um, the treaties after the first Gulf War and was growing and building weapons of mass destruction. And that was the impetus to go back to Iraq, if I, if my memory serves me. That was the stated, that was the stated. Correct. Reason. Although there right. was a lot of pushback at the time. I mean, I protested against Iraq before I left for, um, I, I should mention that. I thought it was dumb because, and, and I did not think Afghanistan was dumb. I thought, I hey, you know, yeah, I mean, it was it, it, it seemed like a bad idea. It turns out that the weapons of mass destruction that we knew the Iraqis had, we knew because we had sold them to them in yeah. the 1980s. They'd gotten rid of or mothballed most of them. They, they really had actually stopped their, their, their chemical weapons program, which surprises everybody. But we were listening to bogus information from people in Iraq who had an agenda, essentially. So we got, you know, there were a bunch of bad reasons for why we went into Iraq and no good reasons. One of the things I told Taibbi was, uh, I have this hypothesis that Iraq and Afghanistan, GWAT, the global wars on terror, are our first truly postmodern wars. And you hear postmodernism thrown around a lot. A lot of people like to use the term because it makes them sound smart or whatever. But mm -hmm. modernity is a, you know, a, a literary or artistic concept in which there's a clearly identifiable plot or narrative around which you can center other subplots or sub-narratives. That's what modernism is. So you can look at a modernist book and say, the reverend wanted to get a job, but you know his no good son prevented him from getting that job. It's about that and it's about love or filial piety or whatever. And that's what it's about. And that's why the author wrote the book, You know, period. 
you look at a postmodern book and the entire point of a postmodern book or a postmodern work of art is it's all about your subjective interpretation of what's happening there. It's about the synthesis of you as the individual reading it or watching it or whatever else. And so the meaning is created between you and the work. It changes for everybody. It's impossible to say that the work or the piece of art or whatever is about anything because it's deliberately about everything and nothing. And so GWAT is, like you were saying, Peter, like, you know, it's about a bunch of different things. You know, Iraq is about a bunch of different things. It's about oil. Uh, Tom, it's about WMDs. It's about, uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush feeling offended that Saddam Hussein threatened his father, George H.W. Bush's life. It's about the collapse of the, you know, liberal world order after uh, the Cold War's end. It's about, you know, fill in the blank. It's about a, a bunch of different things. And, and all of those things are equally plausible. Uh, but, you know, in a democracy, you can't, run, you can't run a country that way. That's not an ethical or moral way to run a war. Uh, and as a result, because there's no real reason that we're in there, it's been, you know, God's own work getting us out of either of those places. Because you can't say, like we did in Vietnam, you can't say, this is not working to contain communism or we don't need to contain communism. There's all of these reasons that we're over there and it makes it really hard to get out. But every sensible civilian I've spoken to over the last 10, 15 years about this seems to think it's our involvement over there is, is, you know, we've gone, we've lost the plot completely. We're, we don't know why we're there. It's has become this completely different agenda that's being, you know, uh, furthered, but I got to ask since the, since civilians and, you know, maybe it's just my West, West coast, East coast friends and, and, and everything else, uh, you know, the liberal limousine as it's referred to that has this, um, this point of view, but what does it do to the morale of the troops that are there? Where, where, where do they stand? What are, how, how do they carry the water when it seems so obvious or are they being told something different and, or is it just a job and they're just trying to get through it? I mean, that's where, that's where I, I, I really struggle to understand how they can sit there. And even with our last president, listen with it, with, and we all have common sense, but some of the things that come out of these politicians' mouths is absolutely absurd. As a soldier on the ground, what does it do to the morale of the rank and file that are serving over there? It, it puts an incredible burden of leadership on lower ranking officers who encounter the soldiers and sergeants day to day and a burden of leadership on the sergeants as well. But ultimately to your point, it makes people incredibly cynical and it makes people um, cynical, to, which is to say selfish and self-interested um, because that, that's, that's the thing that ends up mattering the most. The thing that I saw that kind of uh, knitted good units together is good sergeants and good officers cared about their soldiers and, the sold, and, and sort of helped the soldiers to care about each other and everybody cared about each other. And uh, you know, not to get too hokey, but love yeah. is what, brought people through that's that's what sal Giunta, you know he won the first he was the first living medal of honor winner he was in my brigade but not my battalion during my first deployment he was up in kunar uh the kunar valley um Cor the korengal valley kunar afghanistan um and he won it for charging after he two taliban were dragging 
what he believed to be uh, a, his wounded uh, sergeant away. And it later turned out, I think, that he was dead. Uh, but he charged at them and he shot and killed one of them and the other one ran away and he recovered his buddy's body. He was a specialist. I mean, he, and they were surrounded and there was like, you know, 10 Taliban to every one US soldier. They were being ambushed. The, 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 the presence of mind to say, you're not going to drag that guy away. He's that, that's my buddy. You know, he's my brother. Um, you, you only do something like that for love. Uh, that's heroic and, so think, and that is love you're absolutely right that's an incredible yeah. story wow <laughs> so i just uh want to butt in here real quick you know we've been uh, gone down the rabbit hole of uh derrida epistemology in the iraq war so um the uh, uh time for us to kind of introduce somebody that really we didn't uh, set up at top there george you want to uh fill in our uh, listeners about mr tom taylor for us yeah, uh, Tom Taylor, as I mentioned, uh, was uh, appeared on episode five, and he is what we like to call one of the buzzards at large or buzzards on the beat, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of just a reoccurring friend of the program. And um, Tom did some uh, work for many years uh, for New Balance, uh, the shoe company up there in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Tom, I'll let you explain it, uh, you know, the work that you've done interacting uh, with the service men and women, but I know you had some interesting questions uh, for Adrian as it pertains to some of uh, the non-military operations that were going on uh, overseas uh, during uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, New Balance is a, privately owned company in the United States that manufactures in the United States and supplies equipment to the US government. Um, we did a lot of work lobbying for the Berry Amendment to ensure that it was upheld. The Berry Amendment, uh, Amendment states that um, the military should give preference to domestically manufactured products for military service, service supplies. Um, and during my time at New Balance, we lobbied a bit and we worked diligently to kind of support that for New Balance's own interest, as well as the ownership's interest. Um, much respect to the ownership group at New Balance, Jim Davis and his family. Um, but what that led me to was a few opportunities to see how big and how massive or, or get a glimpse into the purchasing power of the U.S. government. And in the Taibbi article, Adrian, there was a few references to some of the more massive government expenditures. Uh, you said in your first deployment there, the Humvee was the vehicle of choice of the U.S. government. And for, to a layperson, that was a high-tech, um, futuristic, and advanced vehicle. But when it got to Afghanistan and the weapons and tactics of the enemy kind of trumped the high-techness or lack of high-tech ability of the Humvee, there was uh, $50 billion spent to develop the MRAP, MRAP um, to kind of combat the tactics and weapons of the Taliban in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, $50 billion in over a five-year period to design, develop, and implement 
new armored personnel carriers for troops on the ground to prevent IEDs and small arms fire and rocket propelled grenades from just protecting and to protect the troops. Are there examples, this led me to kind of extrapolate, okay, $50 billion, massive number, most people can't grasp. In your day-to-day, -day, were there examples of waste and expense, expenditures that a layperson could, could grasp, um, whether that's food and catering or whether that's the acquisition of equipment for your, for your, your troops? Can you kind of give the Joe public or Gen Pop a digestible sum or ex explanation or example of, of waste that you saw on a day-to-day? -day. Sure. Um, well, to begin with, the, um, you know, when you're deployed, your day-to-day -day is pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, on patrol, you know, your vehicle, whatever that is, is a big part of that. Um, I think, you know, with food, food was pretty, uh, food was pretty well done overall. I mean, there, there, there are uh, parts of the U.S. and the U.S. procurement and supply system um, isn't broken in the sense that, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't move things. Uh, it moves a lot of stuff. I think it was broken more in the sense that um, the things and the, the things that it moved in the way that it moved those things tended tended not. What am I going here? Uh, so so here's an example. Here's an example of the procurement system being broken. The um, most of the small arms that are that were when I was in the military carried by the U.S. military uh, and and even some of the heavier uh, uh, weapons. M4. M16, M249, which is a, a squad assault weapon. It's a medium, a, a light machine gun. M240 Bravo, M2, the, the Browning, um, the heavy machine gun, were all, with the partial exception of the M4, produced by Fabrique Nationale, which is a Belgian company. So your point about the Barry Amendment, you know, uh, and, and the MRAP as well, I believe was produced by Oshkosh, which is a South African company. I think, you know, and we were talking about accountability and apologizing and, you know, taking responsibility for things earlier. You know, we have this giant supply chain and the places in which people, it's, it's difficult to hold companies to account. It's difficult to, to hold uh, individuals accountable for the things that they do. What are we going to do if Fabrique Nationale, for example, messes up the firing pin of an M249, which they did for an entire line of M249s? When I was in training, we were told that the frequent stoppages, like the machine gun would stop working, da 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 jam, da 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 jam, was because of operator incompetence. So we had to clean our weapons better. The weapons were spotless, they were immaculate. What a buddy of mine found was that actually the firing pins for each and every one of these things were defective and the US Army knew about it. There's basically nothing they could do about it. They just bought up a bunch of these machine guns, bought up a bunch of these faulty firing pins, had to, they shipped all of those to the training units and they let people sort of train on these defective weapons and hoped that they didn't get to, you know, regular units when they did. Sometimes there were misfires in combat. People just wouldn't use those weapons. Um, so the machine gun is one example. 
another example, a, a great example, I think uh, probably the most popular example is the uniforms. I don't know if I mentioned that too much with Taibi, but it's widely um, widely pilloried. The AC, what, what I wore was the ACU uniform. So if you search Adrian Bonnenberger Army, you'll see a bunch of photos of me wearing a, a, a uniform with a camo pattern that everybody in the army hated. It was camouflage for two places riverbeds and you know some sort of quasi urban environment and there were a couple times when we were walking in riverbeds in afghanistan where we were like hey it kind of works like this is, this is what it was meant for if only we could fight an entire war here it work. Um, the crotches always ripped they were very shoddily manufactured as well or i don't know about manufactured i don't want to cast any shade there but certainly badly designed in a way that the, the earlier uniforms, the sort of woodland camouflage were well-designed. Uh, and some units would just wear those if they could, if their leadership let them get away with it. And they were replaced by the, um, I think the, uh, I don't even remember the acronym now. My brain is healing from the trauma. Uh, but basically it looked like a woodland camo again in, in, in sort of a Middle Eastern environment. And that's what people wear today for the most part. And that's a great uniform, it doesn't tear and it actually camouflages you in the places that we're fighting. Um, but, but once again, you know, I don't even know how much money we spent on these uniforms. I never heard anybody say, this is a good uniform, I like it. Save for when we were walking through a wadi and we were like, it's actually useful in a place, that's surprising. This only took 15, 10 to 15 years for a trial error to get it right, right? That's um, right. So George, you know, we're, uh, we're, getting, we're getting there. So you want to uh, want to take us home? Yeah, um, I was going to say that um, Adrian, we spent some time. You know, we we've kind of gone all over the map here. I was wondering if you could just shed some light on the uh, the project, or is it an evolving project? Um, the wrath bearing tree. Am I uh, explaining that correctly? Is is it? It's a platform for uh, veterans. I mean, I'll let you explain it, but is it? Is it, it's, it's a, is it, would you say it's a creative outlet for uh, fiction writing, nonfiction writing? What can you tell us about it and how can we help uh, generate some awareness in our own way for uh, some of the work of uh, the folks that uh, are your colleagues over there? I really appreciate it. Um, so Rathbearing Tree, www.rathbearingtree.com um, is, uh, we got the name of it from uh a poem by T.S. Eliot, Gerontian. And uh, Eliot describes history as the wrath-bearing tree. The seeds of history are wrath or violence or war. And a buddy of mine that I met in basic training, and uh, I'm sorry, infantry officer training who deployed to Mosul, Iraq, uh, Mike Carson, and I started it in 2013. It was a really angsty, you know, site where we were complaining about movies and bitching about how the weapon looked wrong and the uniform was dumb. And it was just very like self-involved and kind of narcissistic. And over the years, it's really evolved into being a platform where veterans can submit, uh, and not just veterans, military spouses as well. People like really, really, truly interested in, uh, in military history, things of that nature can submit essays, fiction, poetry. Uh, we've had a couple photo essays. It's just a way for people to connect. Uh, and I think most of our audience right now is probably folks in the military community or in the military uh, civilian, sort of like civilian adjacent community. And, uh, you know, eventually we'd like it to be the type of thing where people will come and, and, and read that stuff and connect with, with uh, 
you know, some of the veter some of the stories that veterans have uh, have written. And uh, yeah, it's it's I'm I'm sort of stepping back from it uh, for the most part these days because. Um, you know, when, when you when you have something like that, it, it ultimately it becomes bigger than yourself. Um, and I want it to keep growing and not be limited by my weird, you know, aesthetic preferences or whatever. So, uh, but thank you guys for for shouting it out. I really appreciate it. Oh, we'll, we'll absolutely. Will you still be? Yeah. yeah, we'll include that for sure. Um, will you still be a contributor if you're not uh, in the day to day management role? I guess. Yeah, always. I mean, I'm 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 always going to be a, a a booster unless they do or say something crazy. I can't imagine that. Probably yeah. they'll get rid of me at some point. They'll kick me out. You know, I I was going to say, did you ever read the Tim O'Brien book, The Things We Carry? You know, a, a lot of folks from my generation sort of resent him because he wrote like the quintessential. He he wrote he's you know you can't write a true war story. Like he did it, you know, he just like, and it's done now. Scared so the shit out of me. That's insane. It's, it's he, a great book. Those tunnel sequences, man, it's like, it still gives me nightmares. That's probably, it, if they ever put that to screen. I think that, they that, are. That, I think that, Tom that, Hardy that, is going to be in the, in the film and some others. That's one hell of a book as far as, uh, you know, in Vietnam, I mean, uh, Apocalypse Now isn't so much a Vietnam movie as it is sort of a, it, you know, it's a, it's a horror movie. You know, and uh, a horror surfer science fiction road picture. You know, um, there's uh, so many different movies. Uh, the best movie about war I've ever seen personally, though, is a Russian movie called Come and See about World War II. If you have never had a chance to see that from 1985, that's a masterpiece. Probably uh, has garnered a reputation over the years since it's been more available to the Western audiences as considered now perhaps as the greatest war movie ever made you know i know uh scorsese tarantino all highly regard the film now you haven't seen it but i, I recommend it highly I'll, I'll watch it i want to throw two other movies your way my favorite war movies thin red line and then yeah. cross of iron by sam Peck oh god sam Peck and underra they're underrated yeah i love both those movies i love cross of iron with james coburn that's a that's a solid picture by 1978, that came out right just towards the end of Peckinpah's last last gasp of air, you know, around the time we did Convoy just before the cocaine and the alcohol took yeah. over. And then you had um, uh, the, the thin, you know, thin Red Line. Both the novel and the movie are equally as, as, as wonderful. And the movie posits the notion that, you know, what, you know, because it's the interior dialogue, right, that the characters have. That is so poetic, so graceful, yet the way they communicate to each other is, you know, everything's cut off, everything's short. You know, it's it's the inability to communicate what you feel on the inside about what you extract on the outside or what you exhibit on the outside. It's it's a it's a wonderful. So I saw good. that in Chicago at the Biograph Theater where Dillinger was shot dead many years ago. So all by myself, I went and I walked out of that theater stumbling around, you know, for a couple of hours yeah. in, a, in a stupor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Adrian, uh, Generation Kill. Have you seen that series? I did. That's that's a really good one. That's, yeah, I, that thought, I, I always thought somewhere. that was very compelling. And uh, I read the book and uh, I think a lot some some of the the, the guys that actually served in the the uh, operation were part of the the um 
I think some of the guys are actually part of the the production. Maybe I have that. It's been a long time, but um, I I always remember really liking that that uh, mini series on HBO. Adrian, just while I have you, one one question that that's been uh, nagging at me, you know, since I have some, we have someone here with a journalism background. Do you equate, or is it fair to equate the lack of accountability in journalism and everything that we were talking about earlier with the decrease in print journalism? There's no editors, there's no desk editors, there's just people on Twitter and blogs and and no no accountability as far as people backing up their stories or or anything like that and is there any path to it going back to a trusted to to any kind of trusted news source because it seems to me a big thing now is who can you trust that's delivering you the news it just doesn't feel like you can trust anybody that's delivering the news these days yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go off too much here. I know, I know, we're sort of coming up against the end of the the, the time, but like, yeah. I mean, something that I here's a couple of things I think about. First of all, when you look at the Roman Empire, a lot of the bigger buildings of the Roman Empire in the cities were built by very wealthy patrons, and it was considered not like an honor, but it was considered part of the privilege of being wealthy to give back to the community. So you'd build an aqueduct or you'd like pave a road. And a lot of that stuff is still around, which is incredible. They made it so well. But that was, that was you know, the, what you did in the Roman Empire, whether you were you know, in some town in Syria or you were in Rome or you were in Gaul, is you're a wealthy person, a person of power. You lived in the city, you participated in government, you built something. And then by the end of the Roman Empire, a lot of that had fallen away. People had moved into the, essentially the Roman suburbs. They had these giant palatial estates in, you know, in the countryside and that's where they lived and they didn't build anything in the cities and they didn't maintain it and they didn't feel like participating in government. And so I think with media today, and I, this is just one of the, like, the many signs of our society fraying, and I got a lot of confidence in America and I have a lot of love for America and what we stand for and our country's values, which are unique in the world. What I mean when I say that is you can't go to Japan and become a Japanese, you can become a Japanese citizen, but you're not going to be Japanese. You can go to Russia, you can become a Russian citizen, you're not going to be Russian, you're not going to be German, you're not going to be French. They're going to remind you you're an American. They're going to remind you you're not from here. But you come here from any country in the world, you get your citizenship, whether you speak great English, whether you speak, you know, so-so English doesn't matter, you get your citizenship, you're an American, you vote. And people take that seriously, and that's important. But media and a lot of our other institutions are fraying because people who are wealthy and powerful, rather than wanting to have these institutions be healthy, they use them as kind of partisan platforms. And probably it was like that in the past to a certain extent too, but there were always enough of them that were willing to, to defend those standards. And now what it is, is it is actually media. You know, we say media, we, we talk about media and journalism interchangeably. Right. But like media isn't journalism. Media includes movies and video games. Media is how you make money. Journalism a is a set of professional ethics. You know, it's I'm going to talk to people from both sides of the I want to get what the story is. Well, this person saw this. This person saw that. And the police officer wrote this. Here's the story. And if you're not getting that, then, you know, and people aren't enforcing that and people are saying instead like, oh, good. You know, I'm a Trump guy. So I want the Trump story. Cool. You know, every, everyone who isn't Trump is crazy. Oh, I'm a Clinton person. Like, I want the Hillary Clinton story. 
everybody who isn't Clinton is crazy. And, and it, it, it's not going to, it's not going to last if we keep doing that. It's untenable. Uh, I, yeah. I, I hope, I hope that we're not like all the way down that road. I hope we're adults. We're seeing this and we're like, Hey, we can stop. We can like, you know, we need some wealthy people to step up and kind of take accountability for, you know, and, and fourth and, estate got commodified and rolled into, a, you know, the, the mega corporations. I agree. And there used to be, you know, in journalism, every single fact had to be sourced twice, right? You had to have two sources to back up every single comment and or uh, potential fact that you had. And that was you know, a lot of work to do, you know, back then, particularly in the halcyon days of, you know, the, the, um, all the president's men era, you know, and, and, and so forth. Some, somewhere between um, Hearst and uh, social media. You know, we had a period of time there where, you know, you could more or less trust the uh, the press. I remember religiously reading the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times uh, growing up, but no more. Adrian, man, I mean, I on behalf of all of us, your time has been this has been a fantastic conversation. I really we we really appreciate it. Uh, you know, George, great job, man, finding Adrian for us all to talk to here. Tom, great and. Uh, Raj, you know, you'll take us home with uh, with our little bit of business, but uh, any, any last things you'd like to leave us with, man? No, thank you so much for having me on. Really, uh, really uh, had a great time hanging out with you, and uh, I wish you all uh, the best of luck. Right and back Adrian, at you, we, we just really wanted to say, you know, uh, thank you for your service. You know, uh, there's really no um, way the civilian can understand what uh, you've done and, um, you know, the effort that you know, went in over there and I, you know, I could just tell by your reading how serious you take this and, you know, the stories you tell us, but also that you continue to, uh, you know, you're carrying the torch. I feel like you're just getting started. You know, you're at Yale. I mean, you know, the, the, the possibilities are endless and especially with the project um, that you're a part of, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to, to um, following what you're doing and following your colleagues and, you know, I'm glad that Taibi um, was able to kind of, you know, shine a light on what you did. And now there's a whole nother um, when, you know, we say the tree, you know, we follow the branches on the tree. And now we can read about some of these other folks that you're associated with. And uh, I'm interested in learning more. And, uh, you know, just thanks for everything and especially your time. And I know you didn't have to do this. So uh, we appreciate it. And we want to release this right around Memorial Day. And we hope that um, the people that we know and listen to us uh, are able to hear it right from the source. And uh, thanks for, for everything. Appreciate, appreciate it, it, fellas. Tom, you got a little something to say? No, just to reiterate everything. But uh, thanks for the time. I don't know how these guys landed you as a guest. So <laughs> well done, guys. Um, it's the SUNY connection, right? It's the SUNY, it's the SUNY connection for sure. The SUNY oh. guys stick together. And Port I think Jeff. Port Jeff, support Jeff. Jeff. <laughs> take that ferry. Yeah, I'm, I take it. I'll, I'll be there soon, maybe in a week. I, I think we all have a lot of, uh, just to touch back on what you said about being American and becoming American and, and faith in America and, and our views and morals and, and kind of that American positive outlook on the future. Um, that was great to hear. And that's, I think, something we all share. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for listening to yet another episode of $5 Buzz. If you have any comments or questions about this or any other episode or any topics or guests you would like us to have on, 
please email us at five dollar buzz that's f-i-v-e-d-o-l-l-a-r-b-u-z-z-z-z at gmail.com and uh, we will uh, take a look or keep an eye out for your email as soon as we come out of that foxhole thank you very much have a wonderful day thank you Thank you.